Welcome back to Adversary to Ally. It's time we talked about domestic violence and how it's affecting our lives. The cost is much too high. Let's stop it from destroying our lives. Adversary to Ally. Adversary to Ally. the introduction says folks it is about time we talk about domestic violence and child abuse and how it is destroying our lives my name is james walker thank you so much for joining us again this week you know domestic violence really affects children for decades to come and a lot of these problems lead to situations with mental health foster care just a lot of instability for children. Well, how do they get over it? Who's there to help them? My guest today is part of a nationwide organization that benefits children. Let's get him on the show and let's find out how his organization benefits kids and what he has to say. Hello everyone, my name is Marcus Stallworth. I am a licensed master's level social worker and I am the director of training and implementation for the Child Welfare League of America. Like, you know, I, I, there are so many nonprofits dealing with children. What can you tell us about the Child Welfare League of America and what you guys do? I do know that you, you help um, place children, you um, intervene for children, at-risk children who are growing up in um, horrendous situations. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, I certainly can, James. So the Child Welfare League of America, and you're correct, there are a lot of nonprofit organizations that exist. One of the things that CWLA is extremely proud of is we are the longest standing child advocacy group in the United States. We recently just celebrated our 100th, 100th year anniversary. So some of the localized agencies that you might be familiar with that work with children who have experienced abuse, neglect, maltreatment, et cetera, et cetera. Some of our policy development or national advocacy has guided some of that work. So we kind of sit at the macro level in that way. Okay. And then we have like a national blue standard of blueprint for excellence. And uh, many agencies adopt some of that framework. But I also, in the training department, work more closely with particular agencies around training, development, and implementation. Okay, and what are you training them for? Are you training these kids, or are you training people to work with these children, or both? Yeah. So the primary uh, way that we offer training, learning, educational opportunities is training staff so they could be prepared to educate other individuals. So let me give you an example. One of our, well, actually two of our marquee training opportunities or curricula that we offer, one is the pride model of practice, and the other one is the traditions of care. And the pride model of practice is if someone wants to be a foster parent or a resource parent, James, they can't just say, hey, here I am. They have to participate in a training that's coupled with assessment, um, implementation, and it's a whole vetting process. And the Child Welfare League of America has a curriculum that's used not only uh, here in Connecticut and nationally, but in over two dozen countries across the world. And I have a great privilege to be a lead facilitator and oversee some of that national and international work. Well, what are some of your 
volunteers or staff, what are the problems they're seeing with these children? Because the, the children today really face a really rough road, particularly if you are a minority, um, if you're poor and you come from very difficult circumstances, these kids are dealing with shootings on a daily basis. Forget the pandemic. Forget, right. forget that. I mean, they they just deal with so much um, in terms of, you know, trying to get ahead in life. You know, they have that um, weight on their shoulders that, you know, no one cares. We have to fight for education. We have to fight for housing. These kids grow up like that. In addition to all the other problems, what are your uh, what are your people seeing out there with these kids? Well, you know, James, it's interesting that you raise that because I think we kind of look at it just a step before all the things that you mentioned, because they're all accurate and uh, relevant. You know, there's a saying that we often use and it says, it's called, we say, little people become big people. Right. Right. So all the things that you mentioned, if you didn't have the support, you didn't have the resources, you didn't have the ability, you didn't have that community or familial kind of background for an anchor, you grow up resource deficient. And what we see is, Oftentimes, those families, once they have children, kind of repeat that cycle. And those children come to our attention because they've been, you know, found themselves in um, maladaptive environments or, you know, mm -hmm. experience abuse, neglect or maltreatment. And so so what exactly do you do? Let's just pretend that I'm 12 and I'm in a very abusive family situation. Um, we're homeless most of the time. Things are just not good. When you step in, exactly what do you do? So where we would step in is to prepare an agency to have the tools to assess viable candidates to meet the needs of those children if it's decided that they need to be separated from their family. And like I said, it's a really involved process. So we know that abuse can happen in many ways. Um, you know, Absolutely. Variety of ways that that can happen. Some of it's situational, some of it's generational, some of it's environmental. But when those children are separated, CPS usually manages those pieces, James. Okay. When those decisions have been made that they need to be separated, where do those children go? So that's kind of where we step in and we have the, we provide training, we provide resources, uh, assessment, and we educate the facilitators so they can provide information on how to respond to children who've experienced traumatic experiences, how you could strengthen relationships and help them build and establish appropriate attachments. Also, this is interesting, how to be open and support responsible relationships between birth parents and family members. Because even though there's been some abuse or neglect or maltreatment, James, there still is a connection that is there that is important. So it sounds like you when might you have say, a thought. Yeah, when you say that there's a connection there that's important, what do you mean by that? Well, so so think about this. So when we talk, let, let's zoom out for a moment. You know, we hear all this conversation about many people, not just people of color, but right now we'll talk about African-American individuals. And we talk quite a bit about some of their history has been lost and some of their heritage has been gone. So from an identity standpoint, for some individuals that has an impact. So when children are separated from their family of origin, there is still a sense of belonging that is connected to them. And it is important to know who you are, who you came from and what your experience is, all the good things, 
but also some of those other areas as well. And so we really try to educate and help people understand the importance of that because when you have individuals walk around and you're not sure who they are, that can put them in a situation that can make them very vulnerable for other individuals who have adverse intentions. What about, you know, these kids who grow up in these abusive domestic violence situations, do you have programs to help them overcome this uh, violence? Because there is a lot of violence and we do have a, a lot of young people who act out, you know, with all this violence around them, 12, 13, 14 year old kids, they're very young. So is there something in place because we talk a lot about children's mental health, particularly now um, after the pandemic. I'm one of those people who think it's critical that we get mental health services to these kids. So is your agency involved in that in any way? So again, we have, we're in a great position to be at the macro level to offer national guidance around okay. standards and best practice for what agencies should consider when they start to develop these programming. And then when we see agencies across the country that are doing fantastic work, we certainly advertise, we celebrate, we highlight them so other agencies can follow some of their steps, if you will, so that they can create these, this programming that you're referencing. So on a localized level, as a community member, I, I agree and identify with everything that you said, James. You know, when you look out here, there's not a lot of options for young there's people. No, there's not a lot of options and there's not a lot of help. We talk a good game. I mean, we really do. It leads the news. It's in the newspaper. We have child psychologists coming forward. And to me, it's almost as if these are just headlines. We're not really doing anything. And we certainly aren't doing enough to help these low these um, uh, disadvantaged um, children. Because quite frankly, in the Black community, seeking mental health services has always kind of been, no, 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 no I'm not crazy. I'm yes. not crazy, that kind of a thing. And so you have all these kids growing, growing up like that with the misunderstanding that because they may need to talk to somebody, they're crazy or they're less of a person. And I noticed that right now here in Connecticut, which is a small state, we have, um, the last time I looked, 4,300 children that are in need of help. They're without parents and so forth and so on. I believe you are a volunteer uh, for uh, one of these agencies. And it just seems to me that we have a lot of headlines. We don't have a lot of help and these children are suffering. Yes. And so I, I, think, I think we need to do a little bit more, but what more can we do? Because it is a very difficult situation. So what more can we do? So I agree, James, that one of the things that we can do is exactly what we're doing right now, having conversations about it, particularly in minority communities, right? So, you know, there's a lot of blame and shame, a lot of stigma that sometimes is associated with Lots. Uh, being vulnerable, mm -hmm. asking for help, saying that you need help. And even, um, you know, with some of that feed my, feedback might be with family, personal relationships, even in intimate relationships as well. The next step is we find from a systemic level, James, a lot of times there's still some distrust with, within systems. Within you know, systems. If, if, if I'm too honest, if I'm too open, if I'm too expressive, it's just kind of kind of jam me up. You know, I have, you know, experiences. I have a past. I have a history. Are they going to use that against me? You know, I'm on probation. I have a drink or two here and there to when I'm overwhelmed or stressed out, are they going to write that down? There's a lot of ways that people can talk themselves out of reaching out. 
And lastly, lastly, even inside of systems, a lot of times there isn't a lot of representation, James, for individuals that resemble the population that they're committed to support. Right. And I don't always just mean skin color or gender specific. We're also talking about people who can identify with some of their lived experiences and connect with them in a different way. A lot of times that's the conduit that could promote some safety, trust, and some positive engagement. And, you know, I think there's uh, something else that I have to bring this up. We have a lot of people who take advantage of these people who are in bad situations or in difficult situations or are trying to change or turn their lives around. Uh, I, I wrote about a young man sometime, maybe about three years ago, and he worked at a fast food restaurant. And I met him on the bus talking, et cetera, et cetera. And one day he disappeared. And I saw him about six, seven weeks later, and it seems that his schedule had been changed. And I said, well, how do you get home? Because he was working to midnight. He said, well, we have to share a cab, and then I have to walk once I get to you know, the city I live in. And so I said, well, you don't have to do that. I said, that's insane. He said, well, I don't have a choice. I'm on probation. Um, I, have to, I have to do this. But what this did was left him in a deficit every week to earn a paycheck. I got that guy out of that situation, and he's doing wonderful now. You know, but we have a lot of people who do take advantage and make things difficult uh, for people. Do you find that is the case of, do some of your volunteers tell you that is the case they're being roadblocked, so to speak? From, yes. Yeah. So what do you do about situations like that? Because we have a lot of that. We, we do. And you know what, James, I would, I wish I could sit here and say, wow, that really sounds like an anomaly. I haven't had experiences like that, but it happens more frequently than we probably should yes. be aware of. And again, sometimes even on the support side, even as a volunteer, that's why education and training is important to learn how to ask the right questions so that maybe there's some dialogue can take place and we can find ways to look at localized resources and supports that might be able to help them. And, you know, it's great that you mentioned the bus, you know, um, you know, in the city that I live in, you know, buses at one point in time, they stopped early evening. Right. So how, how would you get along around? How would you get around? Transportation, right. Right. So then maybe you don't have a license, but you have a friend who's willing to let you borrow their car to go to the store to get some milk. Now you have to run that risk. And then it could be a it could be a domino effect. Man. And um, sometimes we got to reevaluate. Um, is our intent to really help or to harm? And even or if it's unintentional, harm. it still has outcomes. Right. I think a lot of us, um, we put our noses up in the air at people who have had these bad experiences and are trying to turn around their lives. And what happens is we make it worse for them, you know, because we feel, and I've said this many times about the Black community, so many of us get to certain positions and suddenly we forget where we come from or what the struggle was or that helping hand we needed to get to where we're going. And we have, I think personally, too many in the black community who can really help and don't. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons for that, quite frankly, is that the problem is massive. And maybe as an individual, it, it just seems too much for you to take on, but it is something that we have to do without a doubt. Now, nah, for certain. And you know what, James, I think some of that comes from this kind of mythical, mystical perception of accomplishment. 
So if you've achieved something positive and arrived, if you will, you know, one of the ways to demonstrate that is by getting out of your environment, right? So then you do okay, you move to a different part of town, to a different city, and then you kind of find yourself separated and removed. Well, one of the disadvantages of that for other people who were still there, you know, you it's hard to think you could attain things that you can't see. Right. Right. So there's a there's a value in having some of that visibility, but compounding that in the in the opposite way is sometimes there's a level of fear of okay, well, if I have, you know, a different job and different, you know, mode of transportation and different items and whatnot, now do I have to worry about me being at jeopardy in a particular environment because now I might be targeted as an opportunity to kind of, you know, be pursued in a different way. Well, since we're on this um, train of thought, there's something about your organization I want you to talk about, and that is your Practice Excellence Center. What is the Practice Excellence Center? So the Excellence Center is, again, an area where you can go on and you can find it online, and it talks, offers ideas, strategies, and guidance on how you can practice excellence. So what I really like about the practice excellence is the word excellence, right? It's not mm-hmm. mediocre. It's not subpar. <laughs> It's excellent. It's excellent. And right. that's what we're striving for. And again, on a macro level, from a national standpoint, we want to offer some guidance, some strategies, some tools and resources. So it's not just this. It's not, not just words. It's not lip service. It's not lip service. And it's easily accessible. People can find information from it. And what I really appreciate too, James, is a lot of that is extrapolated from positive experiences from other agencies who have found means to have positive and successful outcomes. Yeah, well, that's a, that's great. And there's also something else here, and that's your advocacy center. And some of the things you guys do are really cool, such as um, helping a foster child um, who is enrolled in college secure housing, you know, finding forever, forever homes for children, and giving community aid. So, um, in terms of the advocacy center, what are you advocating for? I know what you're advocating for, but tell, tell our listeners what you're, you're advocating for. Absolutely. So the advocacy component really is promoting the safety, well-being, and development of children in whatever way that looks like, particularly children and child welfare, right? So there's a lot of agencies who work with children on the preventative side who are still in the home. But if you've been separated from your family, it's very easy to get lost within systems. We have a lot of kids. Very easy. Yes. We have a lot of kids who enter child welfare system. And then once they reach the age of majority, they don't get supports. They don't have resources. They don't have contact. They don't have a place to stay. A lot of times they don't have means of employment. So think about what that could germinate and turn into. So in the advocacy center, what we want to do is connect you to resources while they have access to that and then also prepare them and provide them the skills that can help them have a level of sustainability after their time in child welfare has concluded. You know, I have one more question. I've noticed that when a lot of these um, nonprofits or agencies that help run out of money, run out of funding and the resources necessary to get the work done. And I've also noticed saying that, you know, you get a million dollar grant and 700,000 of that is going toward overhead salaries and so forth and, 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 so, and so on. So the real money isn't getting to the people who absolutely need it. How, how 
your funding, is it adequate? As I know you always need more, but is your funding adequate enough to meet the demand of some of these problems out here? Well, you're right. You know, funding <laughs> is always a challenge. But what, what I would ask uh, viewers to consider is this. We've been in existence for 101 years. So from a longevity perspective, um, there are other individuals, funders, and uh, other sources that recognize the value and importance of what we do and continue to make contributions for the larger good of communities all across America. So I will say that. However, you know, we're in a specific time right now where look at all the things we're talking around, talking about around inequity, around mm -hmm. injustice. Right. You know, some of these grants that exist, you know, even on the local level, just automatically get renewed. One, because other people aren't aware of that dedicated money. And two, it's just kind of like they follow the template. So when we talk about reassessment and reevaluating, we really need to think about where these funds come from. What are they itemized for and how are we utilizing them? Because just the same way we had to make shifts and adaptations during the pandemic, a lot of agencies are looking at how we're dispersing funds and what really is that return on how we're, we're just creating and disseminating resources. Well, I think that is a great look because I'm one of those people that think that the grant money is going to the same agencies over and over and over. One of my pet peeves is, of all this money that is going to these organizations that are providing food, not because they're providing food, which is important, but I don't understand why every single nonprofit is providing food and getting funding for that. We have too many places where food is accessible and it begins to bug me when you know, you're giving, you know, thousands of dollars to this agency for food. And yet this other agency that is doing better work in the community are, are not getting it because of the color of their skin. And that is a true fact. Now, be, before we go, I just need to ask you, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, is there anything that um, you want to say that I have not asked you and you want to um, let people know? Um, no, James, first and foremost, I just want to thank you for your willingness to spend some time with me and have me create an opportunity, opportunity for me to chat a little bit. And um, for those who are looking for more information, you know, they could check on the Child Welfare League of America's website. It's www.cwla.org. And then lastly, just uh, in the space that we're in now, with all this chaos that's happening in the world, I would just encourage individuals to take care, be mindful of your children, you know, take care of yourselves, your neighbors, and uh, the only way we're gonna make steps forward is together, man. There's very few other ways around.